Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, award-winning sports journalist and author R.J. Smith talks about his biography of the celebrated musician Chuck Berry. This book, Chuck Berry and American Life, was published in November 2022 by Hachette Books. R.J. Smith was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder. Today we welcome R.J. Smith, author of Chuck Berry and American Life. And it's comprehensive. But maybe to start out, if you could talk about what attracted you to this story. You know, he's one of those people who I have grown up listening to, uh, having them in my cultural background, to be honest, without thinking about a whole lot, much of my life. There's a way in which he was there and not there for me. And uh, I just started to Think about the man and all the contradictions in his life and his story and his behavior and in his art. And I just got to thinking that this would be a really um, not easy subject, but a really enriching subject, a challenging subject for a writer. And that's always something good, I find. And somebody who I didn't understand why he did this and that and and how he was able to do all the things uh, creatively that he did. And so interesting challenges that attracted me as a writer. What does this biography add to the record? I know you mentioned in it that Chuck Berry has an autobiography, and I'm sure there are other biographies. What does this add? As someone who's written about music and and artists and, and performers a lot in my life, uh, I know I could really give a good analysis and running commentary on the songs that he wrote and his performance style. And at the same time, I know I can report and dig into the background of, of a subject's life and, and go through legal documents and census records and the history of a place someone lived in and incorporate those two different spheres into some kind of overall picture. And finally, I think that Chuck Berry is as much a part of our time as he was a part of his time, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, because we are all thinking about how an artist can be one thing to the public and be a different kind of person or have a different set of issues in their personal life. And we're all going through a period of examining our pleasures and jettisoning some, uh, holding on to some. And I think that Chuck Berry, like as much as anybody, I think, gives us that opportunity and gives us that challenge. Uh, So that interested me as a writer as well. For those who aren't familiar with his place in American music, can you give a summary of what his contributions are? He grew up in St. Louis and he listened to the radio all the time as a young man. And from that, he was hearing the premonitions of what would be rock and roll. 
uh, rhythm and blues, country music, blues. And he put all that stuff together. And this is the 40s or? In the mid-1950s. He's coming mm-hmm. into his own. At the same time, Little Richard and Elvis Presley and Fats Domino and a lot of others. He's there creating more than anybody else, I would say. Uh, Chuck Berry is, there's no one inventor. <laughs> uh, but he had the best blueprint for what became rock and roll. So he mixed black and white sounds and he identified the growing teenage audience of the mid fifties that just changed everything in the 1960s. He identified it and saw the value and developed skills in communicating with that audience in an instant uh, communal way. And so as much as anybody, I'd say he's the father of rock and roll. (laughs) When you say he created the blueprint what is he doing musically that maybe some of those in his cohort aren't? And then how is he communicating that differently? He is merging influences uh, from the country and Western side. His first record, Maybelline, lots of listeners thought he was a white country artist playing a, a faster, upbeat dance tune, um, which was fine with him. He was happy to uh, to blur the lines. That was a great strategy and an instinctive approach for him. So he um, mixed the blues and rhythm and blues and country music and crooner styles like Sinatra and, and even big band jazz. He had a knowledge and ability to, to um, synthesize all that stuff and craft it in a way that appealed not just to adults or not even primarily to adults, but he saw it as early as anybody and more profoundly than than most performers like Elvis or Little Richard. He saw the importance of this nascent teenage audience and he saw strategies for communicating with them. And by then he was an African-American man in his 30s. He just reached out and made a connection with the growing white and black and brown teenage audience of America, and then beyond. What is his family background, his musical training that positions him to do these things? Well, he grew up and spent virtually all his life in and around St. Louis, Missouri. And he was raised in an African-American neighborhood. St. Louis was very informally and formally segregated in the Depression era and beyond. Uh, He grew up in a neighborhood called The Ville, for short, V-I-L-L-E. And DeVille was middle class. His mom was a teacher. His dad was a contractor. It was not so much a port of entry for the Great Migration so much as after you arrived in St. Louis, if you were coming from the South, an African-American, DeVille might be your second stop. It was a world unto itself, self-sustained. So he grew up very rarely encountering white people. And um, not struggling like some people, but struggling a lot more than others, I suppose. So on that level, that that's a part of his background. But he was an original. Yeah, well, I'll tell you one thing that's super important is both his parents loved poetry. And they recited poetry around the kitchen table, around the house. Uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, um, they would memorize his poems In fact, Chuck Berry had a brother named Paul Lawrence Berry, named after the African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So poetry and a passion for the well-chosen word were underscored in that family household. And and Chuck Berry, who was a great lyric writer 
and a great wordsmith clearly took a lot of influence from what his parents were teaching him. And in that teenage market, I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with what you mean there. But what are some of the techniques and challenges for him in reaching that market in the 1950s, early 60s? Yeah, things were changing fast. Uh, Radio was coming into its own. You know, radio had been a format where live jazz bands or hillbilly bands, as they were called, or symphony orchestras would play on the air in syndicated shows. And for lots of reasons, suddenly radio was moving from that expensive approach to uh, local markets playing lots of music that mattered to local listeners. So there was a, a need for lots of records. Suddenly records were being played. So there was this hunger for records. At the same time as after World War II, Babies are being born. It's the baby boom era. So uh, there's a new market to uh, reach as well. And he saw all that. You know, he didn't graduate high school until later in his life. And um, he read, but he wasn't a voracious reader. So where it comes from is mysterious. And one fascinating thing about Chuck Berry is he refused to talk about how he created this stuff. He talked about his life in lots of ways and his, his upbringing, but he didn't talk about how he came to see that market and to see that audience and how he came to write songs like Johnny Be Good or Round and Round or The Promised Land. So that was my challenge as, as, as a writer as well, to connect those dots and fill in the spaces that he didn't ever fill in. Can you talk a little bit about your sources there? Were there other people who helped you understand that work with him or how did you fill in those blanks? Um, I did a lot of different stuff. I spent a lot of time in St. Louis and I looked at St. Louis as being the incubator. Uh, I read through years of, of the black and white press there. I talked to some people from the community, from the Ville, people that knew him or that came from that area. Uh, there's some oral histories in St. Louis that were useful. From the other end of the telescope, I also talked to a lot of musicians from today or musicians in the last 30 years or 40 years who were influenced by Chuck Berry. I talked to bluegrass musicians who recorded um, whole albums of Chuck Berry songs in the bluegrass style. I talked to people like Vernon Reed, a great modern jazz and, and metal and every kind of guitar Vernon could play. Uh, and he is a just a wonderful source of information and ideas. Songwriter uh, Stu Stewart was really helpful. So I talked to songwriters and musicians today about how they came to love Chuck Berry and what those songs said to them and asked them to help me understand how Chuck Berry wrote them and how what made them so good. So that's a part of my approach as well. One of the, what I would maybe call a through line is the challenges of navigating the racial divide that changed depending on the era, but particularly at the beginning, because he's often playing to segregated audiences, but he manages to work through that. Can you talk about what he's doing and what he continues to do over his career around who his audience is? Yeah. And when he's listening to the radio in the early 50s, say, one show or one station played one kind of sound that he liked. Another played another kind of sound. Another's being listened to by polka fans. So he's hearing it all and finding value in much of it. And he's seeing around him 
somehow outside the Ville, through radio, through what he's reading. And however, he's intuiting that barriers are coming down partially, uh, and that audiences are hungry for something that didn't exist before, and they don't know what it is even. You know, young fans are suddenly listening to the blues. They're listening to country music. And he's liking it all. And he's also clearly seeing a future audience there if he can speak to all of them somehow and find themes that run through black and white lives, themes that cross uh, economic distinctions and country and city distinctions as well. And he's not like putting on a chalkboard and, you know, writing a secret formula down. He's just walking around St. Louis doing his job. You know, he was a hairdresser for a while. He was a janitor. He worked in a radio station. He just was thinking about it all the time. And when he started making music, it all flowed out of him from from there on. If we were to try to contextualize the level of success he has, maybe in those early years, how would you describe it, maybe compared to his peers? Well, his first record, Maybelline, from 1955, was huge. It was huge, and he didn't expect it to be an international phenomenon, national yet for sure. In fact, some of the members of his band didn't even, why make a record? We get paid for a show. We we do shows in East St. Louis. That was their, their sort of home base just across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. So, They weren't prepared for the success. He wasn't prepared for the success he had from the mid-50s on. And he just kind of learned by doing, really. You know, I mean, Elvis came around at that exact moment. There were blues artists who were crossing over into rock and roll. A tour circuit was forming. You know, a way to put on shows for Black and white audiences together was a way to have a more efficient business and to make more money. So that had to come into being painfully, unevenly. It still is painful. It's still ongoing and uneven. Uh, So people like Chuck had to have a a approach and look at a world that didn't exist until they helped create it. He had to look at an audience. One day it was uh, an audience in Albany, Georgia say, with a rope going down the middle of the room in front of him, whites on one side, African-Americans on the other, or a balcony and a, and a, and a ground floor seating arrangement. And he had to find a way to um, bring those sides together and to get that rope out of the way. And it was not easy. You give a lot of detail on his relationship with the operators of chess records, and we get a window on the practices of the industry, at least in relation to him. What helped you to do that? There's a lot of material and a lot of oral histories and some people still around who can speak to the history of chess. Chess was the first and and the main label for many years that that Chuck recorded for into the mid-1960s. Many of his biggest hits were on chess. Uh, Chess started as a blues label. Muddy Waters made chess even more famous you know, Howlin' Wolf, Little Walter, many great blues artists. And Chuck loved Muddy Waters. Chuck went to a Muddy Waters show in Chicago in the early 50s. Afterwards, he came up to Muddy Waters, the great blues man, and he said, um, hey, I want to make records too. Uh, How do I get a record out like you, Mr. Waters? And Muddy said, he wrote down the address for Chess Records and says, go here, talk to Leonard Chess. Tell him Muddy Waters said you should talk to him. Uh, And that's how he got a foot in the door. It was really um, starkly 
clear, though, that there's a price to pay on the money side with people putting their names on the songs they didn't write of his and the royalties. It seemed like a given that he would get less than and other Black artists, I'm sure, would get less than what should have been received. Absolutely. And, you know, in that regard, Chess were not the worst offenders and they weren't the best practitioners. They were right in the mainstream of how recording labels looked at their artists in general and definitely specifically African-American artists. You know, Chuck put together Maybelline with his band. They had a huge hit record. And when they saw it for the first time, and he looked on the record and he saw his name as a songwriter and two other names of people that had nothing to do with writing that record. One of them was a, a DJ who played the record a lot and helped make it a hit. And his name is Alan Freed. And, and Chess said, well, Alan Freed's a friend of ours. He will play this record a lot and, and introduce it to his national audience. So they made a payment, as it were, to Alan Freed, gave him songwriting credits, and Chuck Berry made more money. Mm -hmm. The other name was a purported um, low-level mob figure who Leonard Chess played poker with and owed some money to. So they made a perhaps a payment that way. So yeah, that, that was common, uh, not telling artists that there were different kinds of royalties, that they needed to get the paperwork done to get what was due them when they had a hit record. It was standard practice. And the way that artists tended to make money wasn't even from the hit record so much as from going on the road and playing shows where you were paid in cash and you saw the money that you made and you took it on with you to the next town. Yeah. And knowing that chess experience to me helped explain how vigilant he was at getting his money before the show. <laughs> cash. Yes. Yeah. He, he kind of became famous for um, his approach to live performances in general. And it's not, it wasn't just Chuck. It was funny to read when Aretha Franklin passed a few years ago. You know, people talked about how, as if it were an odd thing, how she demanded cash early on in her performances or how she brought her purse onto the stage with her. Well, if you had lost your money in the dressing room five times in a row, you would bring your purse with you on the stage with you as well. You know, it's kind of a common sense thing that was looked at as this uh almost greedy style of, of, of performance. I just think all those artists, if they wanted to hold on to the money, some of the money that was theirs, they learned to ask for cash up front, not a promise of it after the show. In the early 60s, as the Beatles, the white rock groups begin to rise to fame and they really get the audience that Chuck Berry has been cultivating, what's yeah. his response? You know, there was, for instance, the Beach Boys um, very clearly took a Chuck Berry song and just re-recorded it uh, with some new words. And Surfing USA became a national huge hit. And, you know, in the movie in my head, I see Chuck Berry listening to the radio one day and, and hearing Surfing USA come on the air. And the look on his face as he hears a Chuck Berry guitar sound. And everything about that record that is so much about what he was doing just a few years before, it must have just been a, a real slap. Look, he he made and he always people asked him all the time in interviews, you know, you know, they were often framed up, wow, it must have 
felt really great to know the Beatles were recording your your songs and giving him credit. Uh, the Rolling Stones in interviews lavishly praised you. You must just be on cloud nine that these artists acknowledged your art. And he played his cards close to his chest. I think uh, he was a better businessman than a lot of folks on both white side and the black side. He took care of business. So when the Beatles covered his songs, he made a good amount of money. And he preferred to speak about it on that level. Well, I love what they're doing because I get paid for it. But in other ways, it must have been really difficult to process that um, the success they were having, certainly at the start, uh, the Beatles went on their own directions, many different ways, different directions, same as the Rolling Stones. But at the start, they're playing Chuck Berry music. (laughs) And they acknowledged it, uh, unlike, say, the Beach Boys. And so... He saw them reaching audiences and a mass market uh, in ways that he hadn't even been able to achieve, that hadn't existed a few years before. The the mass market he helped create had gone in a different direction, uh, a wider direction. And he was um, able to make a living, a good living, but nothing like the living of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Do you think the mass market he had cultivated from the beginning he envisioned it being a multiracial market going forward. Yes. Um, I I feel like part of it was he saw the potential in making it happen. So how can I make it happen? But very clearly, he saw it was happening to some degree. Radio didn't discriminate. You turned your radio on, you could hear black sounds and white sounds and, and be confused about which was which sometimes. And he saw in other ways America was making some progress. And so... He wanted to go in that direction for all kinds of reasons, high and low and and for the soul and for the business. But he saw it happening. He helped will it into existence. Uh, And then it existed on a plane beyond him. You mentioned that your expertise in reading legal documents helped you in this biography. Can you talk about that and some of the difficult subjects that some biographers might have sidestepped, but you didn't? As a teenager, he went to kind of a reform school for three years for armed robbery. Uh, As a recording star, he went to prison for violating the Mann Act. It's a complicated story, but basically he drove across the country with a 14-year-old girl, had sex with her, and... um, This law that wasn't about sex with young girls, it was about white women with African-American men, is is pretty much the essence of it, the Mann Act, it's called. He went to prison for violating the Mann Act. Uh, Still on the books, still used uh, in some of the prosecution of R. Kelly, a very different form, was used in the uh, New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer. He violated the Mad Act a few years ago. But a- anyway, so he went to prison for about uh, a year and a half of a three-year sentence for that in the early 60s. Later on, he went to prison for tax evasion. And then there were other legal issues as well. Uh, later in his life, he owned a restaurant and kind of a country club outside of St. Louis, And he had installed cameras in the dressing room walls of the women's restrooms and recorded women dressing and using the restrooms. So how widely were some of these things publicized when they were happening? The Man Act stuff, it was written about and there's court records of it. The cameras in the wall stuff 
it was just before the internet age. It was in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, if it happened two years later, it could have so easily been everywhere. And it really hurt his career, but not to the extent that it would have. And people don't know about it to the extent they would have just several years later. Was that a hard decision to include those things? Yes, it was hard. And it was hard to have that stuff in my head at the end of the day. He continues to perform almost up to the end. What is he doing? What kinds of performances? He loved playing. And um, a lot of artists, especially maybe ones who have been doing it for so long, you know, they have a band, they have players that they like to comfortably play with, and you take them on the road with you. Chuck did some of that over the years, but quite often he would come to your town and uh, the person setting up the show would be contracted to set up a band for Chuck to play with. Chuck didn't know those musicians. He hadn't even met them before he arrived at the venue. And he wouldn't tell them what they were going to play that night and which songs in which order. So the shows would be often chaotic because no one knew what Chuck was going to do until he started playing Johnny Be Good and the band bowed in behind him. So on almost any given night, he might put on a great show. You know, there's plenty of those shows that people say, you know, that was the best show I ever saw in my life. Uh, Chuck in wherever, Cleveland in 1992. And that's how he made a living. Mm -hmm. After the recordings uh, faded out, he always made a good living on the road. About when was his last recording? He died in, in 2017. And he'd been working on his last album, or he would have called it his latest album, for decades. He obsessed over a handful of songs. There was uh, one or maybe two fires that burned the master recordings that he'd made in the 80s, and he kept re-recording them. Uh, and he was planning to release it at the time that he died. And just after he died, the album finally came out. And it's a good record. You mentioned his son, Charles Berry Jr. Was he interviewed for this? And if so, what kinds of things was he able to help you understand? I made several trips to St. Louis when I knew Charles would be uh, maybe talking to an audience or appearing on a stage because he, he's a musician as well. And uh, Charles knows me and, and we had casual conversations a, a number of times. And he always said he would do an interview at the right time and the right time never came along. <laughs> so uh, I wish I had been able to get him to commit to an interview, but for reasons uh, that I can understand, and I'm sure reasons I don't even know about, it was not in his interest to do an interview. When that last Chuck Berry album came out, the onus of doing the interviews fell on him. And so there were a lot of interviews in that period that Charles Berry Jr. gave uh, Butch Berry, his informal name is, uh, Butch gave lots of interviews about that album and about his dad. So I, I use those and other sources as well. So he's quoted throughout the book from those kinds of interviews and other public events. And then Chuck Berry's wife, Thimetta, yes. um, she's in the background, but always there through all of these travails. Were you able to learn how she viewed these things? So much respect for Thimetta. And um, they always stayed married. He had many affairs and, and they lived in near each other, but they'd stopped living together largely early-ish on in his career. 
I met her once and she invited me into her house and we sat down for 10 or 15 minutes and, and had a very cordial conversation like the ones with Butch. Um, said she would be interviewed and we never came up with the time. But she had an influence on the sound early on. He trusted her opinion about songs he was writing and versions of recordings. She loved the blues and she kept the blues alive in his music, I think. She is still alive and um, protects his legacy and is a powerful human being. Well, thank you so much. This is a, as I said, a comprehensive biography and for bio members, I think it's a real example of how you're using sources and making decisions about both very comfortable topics, but difficult topics. And, you know, they give us a full picture of who Chuck Berry was. Thank you for reading it, first of all, and letting me unpack it. Thank you. That was journalist and author R.J. Smith speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder about his latest book, Chuck Berry, An American Life. It was published in November 2022 by Hachette Books. This interview was recorded via Zoom on January 13th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.